0: Thank you. The Tell Me podcast. I'm your host, Ilya. Uh, It's been an awesome start to this podcast. Um, I've had a lot of brilliant feedback from people over the last couple episodes. Uh, For this one, to say I was excited, even nervous, um, it's probably an understatement. (laughs) My wife uh, was looking at me funny as I ran laps around our living room to sort of shake away the excitement. And just before walking out to the man shed, Um, He yelled out, do you even know who I'm speaking to? Um, She didn't. Anyways, on this episode, I have a conversation with John Stryker Meyer. John began his military career in 1966 during the Vietnam War um, as part of the U.S. Army Special Forces, also known as the Green Berets. After training, um, he and a small number of men put their hands up to volunteer for the highly classified and secretive uh, McAfee-Sog unit. During his years at SOG, he took part in numerous clandestine operations, from reconnaissance, rescue operations of POWs, um, downed pilots, uh, numerous other activities in what was known as the secret war. Um, and after his military career, John returned to the states and enrolled in college uh, with a degree in political science, and eventually working as a writer for the Trenton Times. Now, several decades after the war, uh, once the MacVie SOG non-disclosure agreements, or NDAs, had expired, John put to paper the stories of war in his first book, called Across the Fence. John's in the process of uh, writing his next books. Uh, he's involved in various charities and runs his own podcast called SogCast, Untold Stories of McAfee Sog. Um, you know, Because there was a lot to cover, and due to the insane amounts of missions and incredible stories run by Sog, this interview was formatted a little different. Uh, I picked out a few stories from John's book and we discussed them in further detail. So you can buy his books on Amazon, follow him on social media. Um, I'll put all the links in the description. Now without further ado, episode two with John Stryker Meyer. All right, John, thanks for being on the podcast. we um, we've, you know sort of toyed with a few dates back and forth in the, over the last couple of months and we finally managed to find some time so i really appreciate you uh making the time to, to come on this podcast
1: well thank you it's the first time i've been interviewed by an australian living in scotland
0: <laughs> yeah a, a malaysian italian australian uh living in scotland yeah it's uh, bizarre times that's a universal mix it is i'm the uh, product <laughs> of globalization i think <laughs> Indeed. all right um <laughs> So this podcast, obviously, it's called the Tell Me podcast. Um, So, John, um, just from the beginning, uh, just tell me about, you know, where you grew up, um, uh, what was happening around the time that you were, you know, you were a
1: kid. Yeah, uh, I grew up in Trenton, New Jersey, which is on the east coast of the uh, of our United States and uh, uh, went to Trenton Central High School. My dad was a milkman. Mom was a choir director, piano teacher. And uh, graduated from high school in 64, the year that Green Beret Roger Donlin earned the Medal of Honor, the first Medal of Honor from the Vietnam War. And from that point on, Vietnam began to get much more coverage. And at that point, you know, as a high school student, uh, only reason why I knew where it was that we had history classes where uh, 11th and 12th grade in high school, we had to read the New York times every day. So we became familiar with people like David Habistam and others from, from his era of uh, historic reporting from the New York times. So he knew where it was, but that was about it. And then when he wins the, or he earns the medal of honor, then it's kind of like, wow, I go to college for two years. I flunk out in 1966, I'm working in Yosemite national park, which is a beautiful park in California And, um, um, I read the book, the green berets. And I knew it was, at that time we had a draft in the United States. So I knew that if I got, uh, drafted, it could be Marine Corps, Navy, anything. And I was like, no, no, no. If I go, if I can go with these guys, cause they're crazy. <laughs> and it looked like something I really appealed to. It was a challenge, you know, it's like, so, um, enlisted, went through, and then we had to get the all the psychological tests, physical tests, and everything when we're going through advanced infantry. So in 1966, I enlisted, went through basic training at Fort Dix, New Jersey. During advanced infantry training, we did the test and everything for special forces. Nice. And then from there, three weeks of jump school at uh, Fort Campbell, Georgia. This is May. At the end of it, we go to Fort Bragg, begin the training. For Special Forces graduate with a with a full Green Beret accreditation at the end of December we had three more months of uh, temporary training for uh, radio teletype before we went to Vietnam okay and uh, so I did all that went to Vietnam had a month r and landed we we're in country did the in country training at the end of it the in country training the little guy comes out said we're looking for volunteers so, this is Special Forces, the Green Berets, which at the time, to hear me tell, particularly was the finest uh, fighting force in American Armed Forces. And uh, so we all volunteered, not knowing what it was. Two days later, we're up in Da Nang, We get our briefing. You walk in, we pour our pants and pens out. We've been students for 15 <laughs> months. And the Sergeant Major goes, Put that shit away. This is the top <laughs> secret briefing. And we had the non disclosure agreement. So he told us what that was. We had to sign it before he could give us any further briefing. And all the guys stayed. Me, Johnny McIntyre, Rick Cowart, some of our other friends, we all stayed, went through the briefing. He pulls the uh, blanket down and there's Vietnam with the countries and the cities. And then across the fence in Laos, which is north and then Cambodia south to the west of Vietnam, there's nothing but target boxes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hey, uh, welcome to the secret war. <laughs> and at the time, obviously, there there was,
0: you know, on paper, no one was supposed to be in those areas, and that's why it was called the secret war. And you know, cross- yeah,
1: there, our government, the infinite Wisdom, had um, entered a treaty or some kind of a agreement mm-hmm. where we would agree to have no combat troops in Vietnam. Yeah, we, the United States, the Communists agreed to the same thing. So when they agreed to this in the early sixties. By that time, North Vietnamese Congress had been supply, running supplies and manpower south for five years. Yeah. And so they always lied. They yeah. do today, they did then. But our government, with, with the uh, State Department, forced us to abide by that agreement. So we had to find out what was going on across the fence. And that was the need for the secret war, essentially, right. to see yeah. what the enemy was doing, give earlier warning to the in country any pending attacks, troop movements, things like that. Yeah. And hence the secret war was started in uh, 64, ran for eight years, ended in um, 1972. 72. W-
0: so yes, with um, just just going back, so basically New Jersey to Vietnam, a bit, bit of a change,
1: but I was listening. Yeah, my to My dad's no- milk truck being a city slicker yeah. to a jungle fighter.
0: <laughs> How crazy is that? Um, but I was listening to another podcast you were on, um, which is the Global Recon podcast um, with uh, Johnny Hendricks. And you'd mentioned that there'd actually been quite a few blokes from New Jersey sort of rocking up to to the SF
1: training. And then. Well, actually from my little city of Trenton, New Jersey, we had six men that That's actually incredible went through that were, ended up in SOC. That's absolutely and, incredible. Yeah. yeah. And Fred Zabatowski earned the Medal of Honor in 1968 out of running recon out of contum yeah. Tom was yeah. ran recon out of contum. And he, I know he received at least one silver star. I don't know if he got a DSC or not, okay. but Tom was yeah. just now standing recon and hatchet for us. And then, uh, myself, Mike Byard, I went to high school with Mike. That's crazy, and when man. we went in for the top speaker briefing, Mike's handing out paper. I go, Mike, what the hell are you doing here? He says, <laughs> what are you doing here? I said, I'm like you brother. And, uh, <laughs> So, uh, uh, Mike had been working with the Navy SEALs. They needed a combo guy. So, he was running on those PT boats or whatever the Navy calls those boats were going up north. Okay. They yeah. were dropping off teams. Yeah. And so, Mike was working with them. That's and incredible. years later, after we get out, Mike lived in Trenton. He got a job with the gas company. He'd come by and see my mom once a month because he had to come by and check the gas meters. he go, <laughs> Hi, Mrs. Meyer, how are you doing? So, we had a regular, always had a regular, Combo check from Mike through my mom.
0: That's incredible. Oh yeah. What what, what was it? Do you think that sort of brought you guys there? Like I know, obviously, the draft was on. Was it? Did everyone have that sort of mindset where statistically, you know, they were going to be drafted, so you might as well go to the big leagues and and join SF
1: instead of like you were saying before. Big. army. The only person I ever talked to about that was Tom Waskovich. Yeah. And Tom, um, that essentially was. I believe that was Tom's answer also. And the other thing to keep in mind. The other guy was my high school quarterback, Hal Krosky.
0: Yeah.
1: And at the Trenton uh, Trenton High School football team in 1963, that was my senior year. That was his junior year. Right. <laughs> and uh, so Hal was KIA in February of 69. Oh, wow. Running okay. recon out of CCS. Incredible. Wow. That's, oh, yeah.
0: Um, and then just with, with the um, SF program, is that sort of like what? nowadays is referred to as like the x-ray program or like the baby sf where they
1: take the guys off in the our street day they called the baby sf because they needed more bodies okay yeah up until that point you had to have time in the army you had to be an e5 or an e6 before sure. you'd even be considered yeah but by by 67 they had the baby program yeah where and uh, some of my friends have stayed in and they trained today the sf men yeah okay. and there's and they feel that it it's better to get somebody off the street, get them airborne qualified, be in shape. Yeah. They don't have any bad habits from the conventional army. Exactly. and they're they're able to think, be more open
0: minded about it. Yeah, you you're sort of um, you know, the target group is usually like sort of late twenties, early thirties as well. Like from from sort of what I've read and, and seen people going through that program. There's a great book by um Dick Couch, who's actually a Navy SEAL called Chosen Soldier, where he follows Oh no, I got it. Yeah, great, fantastic read. Um and I think, you know, notable sort of Green um, Berets like Tim Kennedy and stuff were actually in that program. Um, so, you know, they, they started off just, yeah, guys on the street um, after September 11th, um, going through the SF uh, um, SF pipeline and, and similar things like you just mentioned. So, you know, you don't have any bad habits. You're generally recruiting people who want to be there as well, as opposed to, you know, just a career move or, or whatever else it may be.
1: Um, oh, yeah.
0: So so yeah so you, like you mentioned the little guy with the notepad comes around saying hey guys who wants to sign up um, you know giddy up sort of uh sort of situation so signing the, the non-disclosure agreement the nda um how long did that last because you know it's obviously the, the most hush well, yeah, we went over in the
1: morning so i i wasn't taking notes about not taking notes yeah uh, we went over in the morning we had the briefing it filled out the uh, NDAs, and we had a safe house. So we all went back to the safe house.
0: yeah.
1: And then uh, Mac and I missed the heli- the first helicopter going up to Fubai. So we waited for the next day. We had a little extra time to sit there. And that night, one of the quick reaction forces from SF came in, and they had been uh, in the Astral. Yeah. And they're talking about what they came up against. And Mac and I are going, Holy shit! <laughs> you know, and, and of course, in those early sixty eight, there had been the Tet offensives. Yeah, that's so right. we were going through the training, the advanced training for RTT, radio teletype. Um, we watched that unfold, and Langvay getting you know, overrun with tanks. Yeah, the, the Green Beret A Camp A one hundred and one. Yeah, and of history, you know, just, yeah, and incredible. how they just hung on there.
0: Yeah, yeah. incredible. Um, all right, so. Macfee sog So, for the for those listening, um, you know, not everyone that list, that's listening to this podcast is going to be from a military background or even no. have any interest in the military whatsoever. But mm-hmm. it basically stands for the Military Assist Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group. So it sounds very unassuming. It sounds like you guys are a bunch of accountants or something like being. Well, you
1: know why they did it that way? Because initially they called it the Special Operations Group. Yeah, but it was in the Navy budget, so they changed it so that when Snoopy ass reporters would go through the budget. They would go like your like your reaction was studies and observations. Oh, they study fauna. Okay, what? Give me the good stuff. <laughs> but it worked. They, didn't, yeah. they hit the budget that way. It's
0: fantastic. Uh, great, great, great maneuvering by whoever was in charge. There. That's that's fantastic. Um, so yeah, so Macphie um, you know, I, I think when I've you know I've I've never served in the military. I've, I've, I've a law enforcement background, but as a as a young kid, there's there was always an interest in you know sort of the military my, my grandfather was in the Royal Malayan Navy um and then I, I can't remember when it was that I first picked up a, a Mac V Sog book but I, I, I read it might have even been an article maybe but it was just like some of the stories were out of this world like I, I didn't you know it, it sort of made mo- the movies seem like child's play when, when you're reading through these stories so that you wrote a book obviously called Across the Fence um, yes sir Anyone listening, it was after the NDA expired. So, uh, you know, like, let's just relax, everyone. Um,
1: but the articles you read could have been from Soldier of Fortune, where I used a nom de guerre and wrote about some of the early missions under a pen name for Soldier of Fortune. Because yeah. had my employer known that I was writing for Soldier of Fortune, they would have made life very difficult for me. I, well, I could
0: imagine. So, so, so how, how, like, you know, obviously, an NDA is, is, is very serious. Like, how many years was that in play for? 20. 20 years. So, 20-year NDA. So, no contact with anyone about every, anything you ever no, did. Because
1: just so your audience knows, it was a top-secret operation. Yeah. So, we couldn't talk about it. And during our briefing, we were told you can't tell your mother, or your father, or your girlfriend. Yeah. And when you went on missions across the fence, we went in sterile. No yeah. name tags, no nothing. Yeah, no patches. And it had to be secret because – if we were killed or captured would the country, our country needs that plausible deniability. Sure. So they could say for the record to the reporters, we have nobody stationed there, which is true. We weren't stationed. We did run missions there. We did die there. And we had the highest casual rate of the Vietnam war. Yeah.
0: And does that make you um, sort of not party to like the Geneva convention, for instance? So like if you were captured, um, they didn't have to treat you like a, like a, you know, a, a, a right. sovereign Our country soldier.
1: Yeah, we weren't a soldier or an airman because we weren't out of uniform. Right. So technically we were spies. Okay, yeah. You could do what, and, and again, even the rules of the conventional rules of, of uh, the Geneva Accords, the communists never abide by that. Yeah. Like the Russians never abide by it. No, exactly. They're just, they're just total scumbags when it comes to anything that is international agreement. They do what the hell they want. They lie to the rest of the world. And only stupid reporters put down what they say and believe what they say. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that.
0: Um, okay, I just want to read a couple bits from your book, sure. which please I think do. are absolutely incredible. So the first one is, um, again, it's Across the Fence, uh, The Secret War in Vietnam. I think you can pick it up. Is it Amazon that you've you've got these?
1: Uh, yeah, please, just go up? to Amazon and you can pick it right up there.
0: There We go so anyone listening, grab this book, it's it's absolutely incredible. Um, so chapter four talks about um, a uh, an SF medic, a SOG medic named John Walton, and uh, it was actually uh, his uh, it would have been his birthday on the 8th of October, uh, so just passed 75th birthday, is that right? Correct, yeah. So we were both born in 1946. Okay, yeah, there we go. So this chapter is basically sort of one of many incredible stories, but this one specifically has um, uh, an incident where, um, where John Walton was involved in. So I'm just going to read a few a few bits and then at the end of my, uh, my amazing read, um, if you want to <laughs> just add in some you know, personal touches there. Um, okay, so this is on page 89. One of the NVA soldiers was crawling up their back trail. As Walton swung his car 15 towards the enemy soldier, the NVA popped up, AK-47 tucked under his arm. He had a big Cheshire Cat grin on his face, knowing he had ST Louisiana dead to rights. The grinning soldier opened fire on full auto while Walton was still running. Four of the NVA's rounds struck the tail gunner, wounding him severely. Walton's car 15 rounds hit the NBA soldier and drove his body backward into the jungle. With the threat temporarily at bay, he began to patch up the tail gunner. Walton dragged him six feet up the hill towards Boggs, got him stabilized and started an IV drip of blood expander. Walton asked Boggs for permission to crawl back to the dead NVA to search for documents and anything of intelligence value. Boggs rightfully declined the offer. Moments later, the first NVA wave attack slammed into ST Louisiana. The six-man team repulsed it without taking any further casualties. And then uh, another bit of that chapter as well. While Walton worked to save Cunningham's life, Covey directed a series of deadly airstrikes around the Knoll where ST Louisiana was fighting for its life. Walton returned to the UCR 10 to tell Covey that two of the three wounded were in serious condition and requested an immediate extraction. Covey writer Pat Watkins told Walton to move the remainder of the team closer to the open area along the ridge. I mean... So this is for the readers or the listeners, you know, their ST Louisiana is coming under heavy attack. Walton's, you know, trying to save his men, uh, putting in an IV drip, blood expanders, and he's still getting on the radio uh, to communicate with Covey for air support. And all of this is happening while
1: bullets are, you know, whizzing past his head. And don't forget, let me interrupt for a second. How Tom Cunningham was wounded. Exactly, He yeah. was wounded because on the third attempt, the third gun run, the 1-0, the team leader, called the airstrike on the team. So the A-1 Sky Raider, single-engine yeah. plane, made a gun run right across the team. Two 20 Mike Mike rounds hit Tom Cunningham. One hit the radio, and it exploded. The shrapnel wounded the team leader. It wounded Tom. The second round hit his leg, blew it off. And sent him flying through the air. Incredible. And he was his leg was hanging on by a sinew. Yeah. And Tom had an out-of-body experience where he saw himself flying through the air without the greatest of ease. Mm-hmm. And he saw himself land. Land on the ground with his legs separated from the rest of his body. And then he thought he was dead. And then he called out his name. And when he did that, he returned to his body. And then John saved his life and brought him home. Uh, it, absolutely incredible, and this is, you
0: know, this is this is one of many missions um, that that you guys were running over that sort of sixty-four to seventy-two period of time. It was is in, incredible. Um, so Walton and the Vietnamese lifted bugs aboard the King Bee and then moved to the open windows on the starboard and port sides to fire at the NVA, some of whom rushed the aircraft. Sure enough, the load was too heavy and Tin couldn't lift uh, couldn't lift off. So he lifted the back wheel off the ground and started rolling downhill, gaining as much airspeed as possible while the NVA fired at the chopper. At the last possible moment, Tin, am I saying that right, Tin?
1: Yes, perfect.
0: Tin nursed the aging Sikorsky over the trees. Unfortunately, the chopper didn't have enough speed to gain the altitude needed to fly out of the mountains. So Captain Tin dipped down into the valley to build up more. Finally, he got the transitional lift he needed to climb out of the mountains and out of the Ashau valley skipping further down a few paragraphs for walton the drama continued when they got cunningham inside he was barely hanging on due to the loss of blood and trauma from the amputation one of the young doctors got nervous he had never had a dirty sweaty grunt from just out of the field sticking his nose into his business when cunningham's blood pressure was so low they couldn't get an iv into him walton told the doctor to do a cut down which is Cut into the vein, expose it, stick a catheter into it, and tie it off with a suture. The doctor soon realized the medic wasn't leaving. So that's at the base. (laughs) Cunningham's getting treated by a doctor who, you know, has all the comforts of a, you know, I would imagine a sterile setting in an operating theater. And uh, here's here's Walton telling the doctor what to do in this situation. Oh, yeah just looking after his men, uh, you know, doing his, what he can to, to save um, Cunningham's life there. Absolutely. Um, and then this last bit from this chapter, um, and then I'll, I'll get some more takes from you, um, from you, John. Uh, so this is after uh, Walton's finally had a well-earned shower. And, uh, and uh, he's, he's, <laughs> so as he sat, as he dealt the cards around the table, someone noticed a flesh wound across his right wrist. Walton was asked what had caused the wound. As Walton puzzled over the crease in his wrist, the poker game came to a temporary halt. Most of the men playing that night were on spike teams or were cubby riders and had spent time on the ground. Finally, Walton said, during con- Finally, Walton said that during contact with the grinning NVA soldier who shot this ST Louisiana tailgunner, one of the rounds from the AK-47 had creased Walton's wrist as he was turning his body toward the NVA soldier to kill him. Everyone sat there for a second amazed at how close Walton had come to being shot and just how fortunate he was that the NBA's round hadn't inflicted a more serious wound. Walton just shrugged his shoulders
1: and the game continued. Can you imagine? (laughs) Yeah. It it took off three layers of skin. (sighs) Crazy. That is,
0: I mean, that's just incredible. And, And as a result of this, obviously, um, uh, john was awarded a silver star is that is that correct correct yeah. yes he was i mean that's well that's, earned. <laughs> well earned um that's just incredible um and and the fact see this is what i've what i sort of admire about you as well um john is is the fact that you're able to capture these moments and and uh and put them in such a you know eloquent sort of way that that's easy to read and, and and easy enough for for someone like myself who's never served or anything but it makes me feel as i'm reading i feel like i'm there um and sort of you know just bird's eye view looking at what's happening so um you know th- thank you for sharing these stories um i think it's it's very important especially these days um where where there's i don't know I've, a lack of um a lack of these sorts of stories where, you know, everyone sort of plays it safe and everything's PC and whatnot, just to have something uh, gritty and and true and um, yeah, just, yeah, just they expiring. were inspiring.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I'm biased, of course. And, uh, <laughs> you know, when we couldn't talk about for so long, you come home, you, you, you know, your family or somebody said, Oh, what was, what you doing in war? Well, we were pretty busy. You know, we were green berets. What's for supper?
0: Yeah, You know, you
1: just move on to the next topic. You couldn't talk about it. Yeah, exactly. It's, is there anything
0: else you want to add to, um,
1: with that chapter? Well, that there's we, one we, little we, sidebar that missed the book. That's <laughs> fascinating. Because before the uh, gun run where Tom, Tom's life changed forever, um, they had directed a napalm strike. And the, na- the napalm came in. It's, a, it's, it's delivered in a big metal canister. Yeah. And it spins when it comes down, it breaks open, the napalm splashes out. Right. In this case, Cunningham was sitting next to Walton, and a piece of the metal from the canister with napalm in it, it was sliding on the metal side with the napalm burning oh. across the ground and it came towards John and Tom. <laughs> it came to rest between John Walton's legs, according to John, which he told me about after the book came out. And then Tom Cunningham, we did a, uh, a SOG cast with Tom that will be uh, posted later this year. Awesome. And it's uh, just amazing sidebar. <laughs> just just a sidebar as well. I
0: love how, yeah, yeah it's, I mean, in, in most people's, uh, you know, like recollections of things, that would be the primary, you know, a bit of napalm uh, just landed between my legs there. That would be the only story told, but this is just he a wants, He
1: wants to come sliding across towards <laughs> him. You know, <laughs> oh, that is nuts.
0: <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Um, <laughs> the so the other um, there's there's lots of stories in your in your book, and and I urge anyone to to pick up a copy and read it. You also do a uh, an audio book, don't you? Are, are you reading the chapters out yourself,
1: or? Yes, I'm reading myself because I I checked with Tom Selleck. And Tom was busy. He couldn't yeah. do it. And I'm Sorry. too cheap to pay him anyway. So yeah, it would stumbies, uh, the first book, uh, Cross the Fence, and the second book, On the Ground, The Secret War in Vietnam, are both out as audiobooks. I read them and we're in the process of getting ready to, to convert the third book into an audio book. Oh, that's that's amazing.
0: We, we had a chat before this, um, before we started recording this podcast. But um, one of the things I, I found intriguing in the book was... Um, in terms of uh, leadership, and in this case, bad leadership. So, um, I've been privileged in, in my sort of careers to have uh, been exposed to some fantastic leaders, and then uh, some not so fantastic leaders. So this Indeed. is uh, <laughs> this is chapter six, uh, <laughs> and the title of this chapter is "You Shot Me Three Times." I love it. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'll just read a few bits, um, and it's it's amazing that there's you know there's the bad leaders, but at, at the end of this sort like, sort of hellish gunfight that um st Alabama are put through the uh it, it shows you know the leader isn't necessarily the guy with the highest rank, the oldest person in the room, the most experienced. It's you know it could be anyone. Uh and and I very much think that that uh, Lynn Black is, you know, took that leadership charge upon himself. He's the epitome of of a of a leader rising to the occasion. Exactly right. So I'll, I'll just read a little bit again and then um if you don't mind uh sharing your your thoughts on uh, of of the chapter. So, uh, the brass wanted to put an overweight special forces sergeant from Germany, who had a previous tour of duty with the Green Beret A team, but no experience in Laos, in the one-zero slot simply because he had more rank. Schaff objected; he was quietly removed from the team, and the senior SF sergeant took command. That's that's a great start. Obviously, when uh, when one of your own guys says no, we don't want this happening. We'll just, we'll just move him out of the way and, and put the other guy in anyways, even though he's got no experience. <laughs> um, so as we mentioned, Lynn Black, I think was the uh, the real leader in this, in this chapter. So although this was Black's first SOG mission into Prairie Fire, he knew the odds were stacked against ST Alabama. He and Cowboy argued vigorously for an immediate extraction. The team had been compromised. The element of surprise was gone. The other American who had not gone through special forces qualifications course at Fort Bragg, remained silent. No, said the 1-0. I'm an American. No slant-eyed SOB is going to run me off. Watkins offered the 1-0 a chance to extract. The offer was declined. The team was to continue. And then, uh, you know, shit really hit the fan there. <laughs> uh, Boy, so was- this next bit is, uh, was it page 115 here? The fearless NVA mounted a charge towards ST Alabama with AK-47s on full automatic. Black detonated the Claymore mine. It blew a huge hole in the NVA ranks. Before the smoke cleared, ST Alabama ran through the human carnage, firing Car 15s on full automatic and throwing M26 frag grenades while dragging their free sorry while dragging their three wounded team members. Miraculously, ST Alabama made it through the NVA wave of attackers and moved back towards the LZ, leaving their dead behind. Covey had bad news for Black. The King Bees had to return to Fubai. Is it Fubai?
1: Yes, perfect.
0: Fubai to refuel. No extraction was possible for at least two to three hours. Meanwhile, the relentless and bloodied NVA ran after the Spike team. Black planted a Claymore mine with a five-second time delay fuse. It wreaked havoc on the hard-charging NVA. As the smoke cleared and the body parts settled back to earth, ST Alabama split in half and again charged to the battered and torn ranks of the NVA warriors, killing any standing enemy. They counted at least 50 NVA dead. Can you imagine? <laughs> just, yeah, that's the thing. Like I just, the numbers are just astounding. I mean, there's how, so how many people
1: are in a, or how many soldiers are
0: in, are in a spike team?
1: On that mission, they went in with nine. Nine. Three Americans and six South Vietnamese. Incredible. Like, And and for those
0: listening, um, a spike team is sort of the equivalent to, I guess, a modern-day recon team is what they would call it nowadays. Right.
1: The spike team was just the code name for a recon team yeah. in 68. Okay. Yes, sir. Gotcha. Um, moving on to
0: page 116. Something hit black on the side of his head, knocking him to his knee. Yeah, his knees. He was scrambling to get up when the grenade went off. The last thing he remembered was being slammed into a tree, face first, and the car fifteen hanging uh, handle digging into his chest. He thought he was drowning, but then he felt kicking. But then he felt feet kicking him and hands slapping him all over. It was the team. They were beating Black back into consciousness and pouring water on his face. He tried to get up, but his legs didn't work. From the knees down, there were no fatigue pants; just surface bleeding. One of the guys started smearing gelatinized rice on the injured one-two's legs, arms, and chest. Flax, web gear, and what was left of his fatigue jacket were lying shredded, bloody on the ground. The car 15 was bent where the barrel meets the receiver, and the bolt couldn't be pulled back. One of the team buried it. Absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> The, the other um so just as we're reading this uh, just going through some nomenclature so one zero one 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 twos are all um basically uh designated team like positions within right. a team. One
1: zero is the team leader one yep. one is assistant team leader one two is a radio operator gotcha it was that now
0: sort of in the current times in the special forces there's your 18 alphas bravos Charlie's deltas and so on was that 18 designated around um, when
1: you were in SF? No, we just called, we just called our, our baby SF at that time. Yeah, gotcha. And because uh, it, it was all new and yeah. we were just in the program without sitting back to evaluate it, we were just there and had to go to work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then the
0: other thing that keeps popping up, which I, I love, is your love for the Car 15. So for those um, that you <laughs> know, aren't into guns or anything like that, uh, basically, Car 15 is like a, a short barreled M16 um, with a classable and- stock. With a collapsible stock, uh, and it carried was it eighteen rounds at the time.
1: Well, the magazines were designed for twenty, but we only put eighteen in in the magazines because the, the springs spring. yeah. couldn't work if they were if they're too packed. Sometimes you just don't want to run that risk in the middle of a firefight.
0: Gotcha. And and the most uh, one of the craziest things I think about about all of this. So you're you're running there with eighteen rounds in a magazine with a Car 15, the AK-47 had a capacity of at the time what was it 30 rounds 30 yes sir so almost double the amount of rounds that you have per magazine like you know it's just incredible the the sort of uh firefights that you you got into but just dominated with less rounds uh you know per magazine i, I think just the numbers alone is just mind-boggling to me um okay so carry on um so again, the one-one panicked, cried, and shouted skyward. The Vietnamese team members, speaking through Cowboy, told Black that they were going to kill the one-one if he didn't shut up. <laughs> Black agreed. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. Then we're going to skip forward a bit. So, without a word, a look, or a plan, acting solely on instinct, all of them except the one-one scurried forward and dragged, dragged back dead NVA placing the bodies in a circle around them and stacking them high. The deadly skirmish continued for several hours before Covey told Black that more gunships and five jolly green giants, the heavily armed Sikorsky HH-3 Echoes were en route. So they'd stacked the enemy soldiers up high, basically like a cadaver wall, yes. and hid behind them, used their AK-47 rounds as their, as their own rounds from the CAR-15s were being depleted. And and that I mean, I I'm at a loss for words.
1: Yeah, well, they welcome to another day in SOG. Another day in SOG, yeah. Yeah. And that Um, that mission was one of the uh, epic missions of SOG. And again, you couldn't talk about it. Yeah. Nobody could talk about it for the first 20 years. And then, like, we did a story for a soldier of fortune under that nom de plume.
0: Yeah.
1: And then um not a book. And then Lynn has since done a book. Has he? Okay. Yes. Uh, Whiskey Foxtrot Tango. WTF. <laughs> I
0: love it. <laughs> um, so towards the end of this chapter. So the sky was full of grenades. Fortunately, they weren't U.S. grenades. <laughs> they hit the ground and threw dirt, smoke, and dust all over the place. ST Alabama looked up just as the AK started again. And behind them, the thongs whirling overhead like helicopter blades. When the AK stopped, the grenades were released. SD Alabama fired. More grenades were released. Alabama threw some back. SD Alabama was caught in a deadly version of the kid game. Pop goes the weasel. <laughs> the AK-47s continued to roar. Alabama ducked. The grenades were launched. Alabama rocked. Catch, throw, duck, rock. Catch, throw,
1: duck, rock. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: How long was this gunfight in total?
1: It was all day. Jeez. From from when they got inserted in the morning until close to last light when they finally got distracted when the helicopter went down and hovered into the jungle, chopping down some treetops to hide from the enemy so they wouldn't have an open shot at it. Incredible. Oh, yeah.
0: And this is, um, again, sort of towards the end of this chapter is um, sort of as, as everyone's getting on the helos to, to get the hell out of there. So Black was running back to the ship when two NVA stepped onto the trail and pointed their AK-47s at him. Chu Hoi, one of the soldier, soldiers shouted. Black stretched out his arms and continued walking towards them. When he was only a few feet away, he said, Chu Hoi. The young NVA soldiers appeared surprised. Before they could react, Black grabbed the ak-47s by their searing barrels and stripped them from the soldiers he backhanded the soldier on his right and smashed the other soldier in the face with one of the weapons he left the stunned soldiers lying there as he sprinted to the chopper where he found the praying 1-1 the rest of the team was on board firing any weapon they could get their hands on as the jungle penetrator lifted black and the 1-1 upward they were showered with hot spent casings from the m60 and other weapons being fired from inside the aircraft.
1: <laughs> he oh, yeah. grabbed
0: the 2AK47 barrels with both hands, uh knocked out those NVA soldiers and uh basically is about to ride off into the sunset in one of the uh one of the helicopters.
1: Yeah, and he had burns <laughs> on both hands. Uh while grabbing the uh the uh, hot barrels of the, the AK47s. Jesus. And the story didn't end there because the helicopter was so banged up that the pilot was only able to fly over a couple of mountaintops. Then he had to do an emergency landing. Yeah. They flew another helicopter out to pick up the majority of the people and they, and they didn't have enough lift capacity. So Lynn and uh, one of the other team members had to go back to base on uh, a, a Cobra gunship yeah. and a Cobra gunship. They have doors on the side that come down with straps. Yeah. So for an emergency, people can get on that door strap in and that's what lynn had to do and then he froze his balls off on the way back to denang because you've to five thousand feet and you're all sweaty and but he's just happy to be out there alive and and the uh
0: the one zero obviously made it out alive as well the um
1: no the one zero was kept he still left behind
0: oh he was left behind. okay zero, right. yes gotcha gotcha um and this is uh, at the end of when they, when they finally made it back to the infirm. So at the Da Nang infirmary, everyone was getting patched up when Thaw saw black. He raised his right hand in a fist above his head. Chu Hoi Du ma, he yelled. The one one who was not wounded stood up on a chair. Listen up, men. I want to commend each and every one of you for a job well done. As a team leader of SD Alabama, I want you to know I personally am going to put each of you in for the Medal of Honor. Your medics take care, you medics take care of my people. He stepped down and left the room. The wounded, exhausted members of SD Alabama looked at Black aghast. Yeah. What
1: a piece of work uh, that one one was. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, uh, the sidebar to that was they went back for the body 25 years later of the team leader. Yeah. And Lynn had, you going to read that part? No, no, you, you, you go. That's that's all you, yeah. Oh, because they went back and uh, uh, they couldn't find the remains. But during that time, Lynn had cooperated with the government, trying to give them coordinates where they were, where he thought the body was when he last saw it. Yeah, he gave eight-figure coordinates, and uh, so uh, he talked. He got a phone call from the NVA officer who ambushed his team. Yeah, and the officer. They had a chat and by this time he was a, he was a big general. And, uh, and he told us, yeah, you know, you attacked us and um, you inflicted 90% casualties on our unit between your team, the uh, air force, spads, fast movers, gunships and uh, Lane goes, yeah, but you know, we have three KIAs and that was pretty, pretty serious odds. He said was that a battalion of 3000? And the NVA goes, no, it was a division of 10,000 men. They inflicted 90% casualties that day. So nine men against 10,000 NVA yeah.
0: soldiers. But we
1: had the Air Force. And then here's the kicker. The uh, general goes, who who was the radio operator who stood up during the initial firefight? Lynn goes, that was me. He says, you shot me three times. <laughs> That's one of the great, great sidebars there to that ending to that story. Well, I just, I just love
0: the fact that, you know, these two soldiers were just chatting to each other on the phone, like, um, you know, recounting the, the uh, you know, what happened 20, 20 plus years ago. And that's, uh, that's incredible. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so that, that was an example, I suppose, of uh, initially starting off with really bad leadership, which ended up yes. putting them in a pretty precarious spot. And then the uh, the most uh, hair-raising gunfight I think I've ever read of or heard of. Um, and then how the team sort of overcame that, and you know, just, just with, with better leadership in, in, uh, in Lynn Black. Um, so it just kind of shows, I guess for anyone listening, anyone can be a leader. You just got to step up and, you know, take charge, do the right thing. Um, so I'm not going to read any more from your book because, uh, otherwise, you know, I, I could get lost in this book. This is an absolutely amazing read. Um, can, can you tell us about an operation that, that you, you were on personally, John? Well, yeah, we had,
1: well, there's always a couple. Um, The one in particular was um, on Thanksgiving day, 1968, our mission was our six man recon team had to go find three NVA divisions that were missing in Cambodia. And our team had been moved from North down South on a temporary assignment. And uh, so um, we went, we did an overnight study of all the intel reports. I mean, literally the CIA, the DIA, nobody could find three NVA divisions. Yeah. And because it was at the end of the year, they're worried about them massing for another TED offensive or attacking at Christmas time or during the holiday season. Right. So the long story short, we went out and the recon gods were with us because we were on the ground maybe a few hours. And we walked into a base camp where the fires were still burning. And one fire still had a pot on it. And um, what we estimated was that one of the divisions had just left and another division was coming in. Well, they came back and they literally chased us back to the end to the LZ. Yeah. And this was Cambodia where you could see this wasn't triple canopy. With Cambodia, it was like maybe single canopy. Yeah, you flat could see. Sort of planes. Right, and you can see three to four hundred yards with some trees, some vegetation. But yeah. the image I'll never forget is seeing NVA running at Port Arms, <laughs> coming towards us Jeez. to get us. Yeah, and um, we were able to uh, uh, go back to the ground. We had the firefight. We yeah. put down Claymore mines with five-second fuses and other Claymore mines. As they ran into them, we clicked them off, and then we had the fuse on them. To slow them down. And then the helicopters came in from the uh the Green Horns, the Air Force 20th Special Operations Squadron came yeah. in and they pulled us out on Thanksgiving Day. So that was one of that that's just like too close for comfort.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the most important question that I have is did you manage to get some turkey for uh for Thanksgiving there?
1: We we had three meals. Did <laughs> <Three. laughs> Yeah, because the CEO said, well, hey, I'm sorry, it's Thanksgiving. We got to find out where these divisions are. I said, we'll give you a, a Thanksgiving dinner before you go on the target. Nice. Okay, we, had, we had the Thanksgiving dinner. We go in really on the ground, two or three hours, get shot out. We go back to um, the launch site, and the Air Force guys go, hey, man, it's Thanksgiving. Come on in get a Thanksgiving <laughs> So we had Thanksgiving dinner with them. And then the, the CEO was getting anxious. He wanted a debriefing from us directly. So yeah. he flew back to base, do the debrief, and he goes, "Hey, you know what? You're lucky. It's still we can still get dinner. Let's go get some turkey." <laughs> so we had a third Thanksgiving turkey. Hey, it's
0: it's all worth it then, isn't it? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. Um, th- there was a, there's another story that I'd I'd love for you to sh- to share to, to the listeners is um the uh, the, the touching my boot story i think that's oh. you know that's that to me is just, so so f- for those of you listening who might not have experienced sort of jungle um you know surrounds um again i'm originally from malaysia so we've, we've got some pretty dense triple canopy jungles as well so um you know I, I know what you mean when when you say that you know at night especially light just does not penetrate to that bottom layer because it's, it's blackout you can't see anything. So um right. just, just starting the, you know, to paint the picture for, for people. Um, yeah. If, if you
1: could, go well, you know, the, story. The, the the part of the story is that for two or three days, we had tried to get it started. Can you hear any other noise coming through? I, I hear a, a pretty uh, happy sounding dog there, but that, that's all good. Not happy, but if you want, I'm happy to put it on hold for a second and go shut him the hell up. No,
0: no, it's it's, it's, it's all good. Yeah. All good. All right.
1: Um, we, we had tried to get into a target. So in the morning, we got shot out of the primary, secondary, and altered LZ. Yeah. Back to base. They gave us a new target. And this had happened for two or three days. So this day, in the morning, we got shot out again. Had lunch. Get into the target. We get inserted. And the weather is kind of questionable. But yeah. we get inserted. So we got on the ground. And I had the team move. Usually, we would move 10 minutes and wait 10 minutes, listen to the jungle, hear what it was. But this area that we got into is a little bit more open. Yeah. And so I had the team get online and we just went up the mountain for over an hour. Wow. We came to a trail, went across the trail, set up a wiretap, set up a uh, uh, an ambush yeah. so yeah. we could capture a live POW. OK. And see, yeah. so we had everything set up. I called the uh, aircraft, the fire, 40 air control. said, Hey, we're ready to blow this thing. Gave him the code. He goes, no, don't do it. He says "I can't see your mountain that you're on." And basically the weather had closed in. yeah. and so at that point above us we heard the tank start up below us on the trail, which was calm. Now everybody's running. they're back and forth. yeah and we know they're looking for us. We could hear the dogs down at the LZ yeah. that we came in on. So we had to move and uh, we tore down the wiretap, moved out. And we moved even to the night. And during that night, we came up to a little stream that had banks on each side. Maybe a brook. I forget how much water was in it. But we got in that water. And I forced the team to go up the hill in the water. And then we went out back and forth. Because now you could hear the dogs coming. And Sal had climbed a tree at night and said there are hundreds of men coming up the hill with lanterns and dogs hunting for us. We put down uh, black pepper patterned mace to foul the dog's noses also. Yeah. So anyway, we finally, we finally set up, went up to the side of the stream or the the water that was flowing. It was only maybe a couple feet wide. And went up to the bank, set up a team perimeter. We had eight of us. I was facing the bank around one midnight, one o'clock in the morning. Two NVA went past us in that riverbed. Jeez. One had a lantern. And one had a gun. I could sit, see the weapon. And they went past us. And the lantern ran out of fuel. They turned around and came back. And when they were walking past us. In that little stream bed, Hep coughed. And the one NVA started climbing up the mountain. So whenever the wind blew, he would move. I could hear him move coming towards me. And I sat there with my feet spread, had my car 15 pointed towards him. So long story short, he moved, it took a while. <laughs> he finally got up there, and uh, he touched my jungle boot. And I heard him catch his breath. And the guy was really cool. I mean, he waited for the wind to blow. He went back down, got his buddy, and they left. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, so the next day we left. We went one way. He went the other. looking for us, but they didn't find us. Yeah,
0: wow. And
1: uh, we moved all day up the mountain. That night, we heard the Russians come in with a resupply.
0: Yeah.
1: And they did a resupply. You know, uh, uh, you mentioned a few things there. Um, so
0: with the wiretaps, rescuing POWs, was that basically, like, not basically, but was that the main sort of mission of SOG was to do the wiretaps on behalf we, of, I would imagine, the CIA and then the yeah, rescue so of POWs? We would always,
1: correct. We'd always turn over our tapes to the CIA. They could amplify them because the NVA phone lines at that time, when they hung up the phone, the line was still alive. Yeah. So we would tap it, and then give the tapes back to the CIA, and uh, they would amplify it a hundred times, and they would get gather intelligence from okay. from those wiretaps, like the background noise and all that sort of stuff. Well, and they hear people talk.
0: Yeah. And, and and when you say tapes, you you mean actual physical tapes? Yeah. Like that was cutting edge stuff back then. Well,
1: it not it wasn't tapes. Now this we had state of the fart. <laughs> We had cassettes, man. Had, these are the first cassette players. And so we had the wire to plug in and Sal or uh, Fook would climb up a telephone pole, hook him on, come back down. When he came back down, they would cover the wire with mud so okay. anybody walking past wouldn't see it. Yeah, wow. Those guys were just great, great guys. That's
0: incredible, yeah. Wow. Um. So on, on these sorts of missions, what, what kind of kit are you running? Obviously, you've got your car 15. Um, you've got all the equipment that you need for the wiretapping and whatnot. Uh, is is it just basic sort of survival type gear and then your ammo or, you know, like how long are you going away for? Like how long are you at a base for that sort of thing?
1: Um, it would be, we'd be gone for the, usually we plan for five day mission. Five days. Okay. But, um, a lot of times we, the trackers would track us down. Yeah. So uh, we carried 600 plus rounds for the car 15. Yeah. Then we had a solid off M79. Had 10 to 12 rounds for it. And then 10 to 12 hand grenades. I carried a radio and extra battery plus food, water, uh, smoke grenades. Yeah. Um, you know, mirror, survival, um, morph- morphine, Tourette's. Okay, yeah. In case you needed that for uh, for anybody
0: that was wounded. Sure. So did you say sawed-off uh, M79s? Yes, sir. What was... Is that... Was that a... Because um, I'd imagine you need a certain barrel length or an M79. And for those not who don't know what an M79 is, it's basically like a grenade launcher. Um,
1: it is cool. a grenade launcher. Yeah. A 40, what, it launches a 40-millimeter grenade. That's right.
0: <laughs> so what was the... Uh, was it was like was there r&d for this sort of stuff or did you guys just do it all in in field you know just just cut off the end of that thing and and, uh... we kept
1: cutting it down to we took the m79 right down to the last support element okay on, on the structure of it yeah so we cut off the first part right down to the end of the where the wood straps on yeah and we cut the handle down just so you had enough handle Okay. So all your shoulder support of the MCNA was cut it was off. was cut off, yeah. And we whacked it right at the handle part. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs>
0: um so that was uh, that. the touching of the boot story. I love that one.
1: were they what was do you remember your last SOG mission at all? Well, yeah, we had another close encounter with an NVA on that. Uh we had been inserted. We I tried a four man team. And the theory was I wanted to get on the ground and to move quickly and just see if we could move with a four-man team because the Astral Valley uh, parts of it that we were going in for the target didn't have triple canopy. Gotcha. And so I thought if we went in, got off the LZ, moved quickly, the NVA would always use their standard techniques, and we could maybe try to outrace them, move, right. get get on with the mission, which would be as an area of reconnaissance because the ash shawl was always hot. Yeah. And uh, anyway, we made contact. There's some other sidebars to it. But at one point, <clears throat> we had had some very light contact, and the NVA were still looking for us. And so I had the team. There was four of us. And I was looking north, and the other three guys, east, west, and south. As I looked at the jungle, an NVA, young NVA, moved in that jungle vegetation towards me where I could see his face. And then I could see his hands with the AK down. And I had my car 15 up pointed at him. Had he moved quickly, he would have been dead. Yeah. But he did nothing. We looked at each other. And there was that moment in time where he just stood there. And then he backed up and left. I watched. I could still see his hands. And then I moved forward a little bit just so I could make sure I saw where his hands were. Yeah. And then I moved over just in case he changed his mind and wanted to open fire. But he, he backed up and just left. Jeez. And that was my last mission. Went home two weeks later.
0: Wow. And and I, how, how, how many family. years had you been in, uh, in SOG by
1: then? Well, I was in for 12 months. Came home with Tenth Special Forces Group. I was yeah. for five months hated it went back to Vietnam got my old recon team back with Lynn Black and I yeah and then there was some politics involved with the uh, uh the, our base commander okay. so I ran recon for 19 months essentially yeah wow. and I just came home went back to school <laughs> just came home and went back to school so
0: just uh it took you two years to flunk out uh, the, the yeah. first time around. So, uh, <laughs> do, you so want, do you want now? I had a
1: better attitude. I knew I had to. Really focus. <laughs> so I focused better. I was a little bit more mature. Yeah. Um, and, and what year is this? Um, that I got out of the army, April twenty fifth, nineteen seventy. Nineteen
0: seventy. Okay. Um. And and so yeah, what was that transition like for you? Like, obviously, you know, these days, I think, with with the um, the amount that. We talk about in terms of mental health, um, you know, veteran suicides, like serving sui- like uh, serving member suicide rates and all that sort of stuff. I, I, you know, I think these days it's it's become normal to talk about experiences and, and things of that nature, maybe not so much in the in the higher you know tier one sort of units. Um, but for you coming out of of the war, it obviously wasn't a popular war back home. And then you're going into. An environment like school where generally speaking it's it's a bit more you know uh well, I I'm knew why lefty. We then, yeah. yeah I knew why we were there,
1: we were fighting communism, yeah, and all the South Vietnamese on my team, they gave me the support they they knew the South Vietnam government was corrupt, yeah, but they preferred to live under a corrupt government that they knew and were familiar with than to live under the thumb of communism, yeah. Major difference. And people today don't understand that. Yeah. So that was, you know, I had no, I never doubted for a second our mission. Yeah. And then okay. I'm alive today. Thanks to the courage of my South Vietnamese. We have South Vietnamese helicopter pilots that saved our team time after time. Amazing men. I'm alive today. Again, thanks to them. Our, our team was saved by them on many occasions. Yeah. Um, They came in under, under very intense enemy fire. So. I never had any doubts about that when I went back, you know, you missed the adrenaline rush of, of uh, when you get involved in mortal combat. And we were fortunate that again, thanks to my team, um, we always came out ahead on the firefights nice. and we were able to between using TAC air, survive the day, try to do the mission. And then to get back to do another mission another day. Yeah. Um, so going to school, you know, I, I never doubted what I wanted. I, I had to get back to school, and I didn't know if I wanted to stay in the army, because you could see the reduction of forces that were coming. And from 1970 to 19, those were the dark years for the army. Yeah. They kept cutting back until you had the hostage, the Iranian hostage, and then they had um, the operation to go in to try to rescue our hostages that led to a debacle in the desert. Yeah, that, And it was sad. But I I didn't want to live through that, so I got out, went back to school, and um, you know I went. I had a part time job driving school buses, and uh, and just got the degree, graduated uh, in seventy four. Yeah, and I stressed it out a little bit. We had the GI Bill at the time. Okay, right, oh, so I had, that place. Majors, yeah. had political science, but then you got two hundred dollars a month, yeah. whether you went to Harvard University. Or to Joe Bip the Ragman Junior College. Yeah. You got two hundred dollars. Yeah, wow. And then they raised it to two twenty five or two fifty. And compared to today, our veterans quite rightly get uh, GI benefits with really extensive, extensive coverage. Yeah, no, that's, that's brilliant. And then,
0: and you mentioned um, obviously you um and you know, amazing writer in that. What, what did you study
1: at um at uni? Um. Well, I had four different majors, but the final I I graduated with a degree in political science. OK, yeah. General arts. And my minor was English. I wasn't that good of a writer. I was a good reporter. Yeah. And uh, my early my early job at the Trenton Times, you know, my writing was often criticized. But I, try, I tried to work on it and I like to think that it improved. Some of my critics would say I never improved, but you know, that's OK. <laughs> Just yeah. a good, just a good editor then. <laughs> yeah, had a good. Co- I always made sure I had a good copy editor because she yeah, would always, what... see me, you know. <laughs> um,
0: all right, and then so obviously that's around you were saying seventy four was it around that Correct. time period? Yeah,
1: graduated in December of seventy four. Yeah, went to work at a newspaper, the Trenton Times. Yeah, I was there for ten years. Went to San Diego, was at a daily there for seven years. Yeah. And then a small paper up in North San Diego County for fifteen. Then 2008 uh, went to work for uh, um, a nonprofit. Okay. Helping to get a, help them to get affordable housing for veterans. We had veterans programs. And then I left that nonprofit for another one that was led by a a Green Beret, who was an original Green Beret, and today he's 89 years old, still leading the effort to uh, provide. Affordable housing for veterans. He's one of my heroes. Incredible. So I had the honor of working with him for nine years. Yeah, wow. Before we moved to Tennessee in January. Yeah. And now we're just doing a podcast. Um, uh, in January, I hope to start writing on book four. Yeah. And then, um, and also we got some grandchildren to keep us busy now, so it's it's a lot of fun.
0: Excellent. Nice. Good to hear. Um, when did you first come up with the? idea to write across the fence
1: was that sort of
0: had well, you always I couldn't, wanted done to without,
1: sort of- I couldn't have done it without my wife um yeah. my wife anna um in 19 about 98 i started working on it and uh she said you know you've got to write the story for the kids yeah at that time we had four teenagers and a newborn in the house and my wife tells me to write a book <laughs> And she supported me. She supported me from that day to, to 20, you know, 20 years later. We we just celebrated our 27th anniversary on October 8th, John Walton's birthday. I was going to say, yeah, happy anniversary as well, because um, obviously we,
0: yeah, thank you. we, we were going to link up on, on October 8th. And then uh, you mentioned it was the anniversary. I'm like, hell no. Happy wife, happy life. I'll leave you guys oh, yeah. alone.
1: <laughs> well, you know, and we had and by talking about that, I mean, you know, John came to our wedding. Yeah. And wow. the same John Walton at our wedding that he was in Vietnam. Just a, a quiet, down-to-earth guy. Yeah. And uh, very modest. Just a quiet he never professional. About himself. Yeah, you had to beat him up to get any to, get <laughs> him to talk about himself in any story. <laughs> yeah.
0: And and I think as well, like, you know, you mentioned like to tell the story to your kids and stuff, but I think um it, it's also in, inspiring for the next generation of of warfighter, um, you know. I know you've you've been on a couple of podcasts, like the um, Andy Stumpf podcast, uh, where Mike Glover was on as well, and he he went on oh, yeah. about how he used to read the John Plaster books. You um, read your book, uh, and that was what sort of inspired him to you know to to serve amongst other things as well. But I think it is important. His career
1: is phenomenal. My God, both of those men have. Such incredible oh. service stories. Oh. You know,
0: if uh, if you want to drop in a word to, to old mate Glover, um, I'd love to have a chat with him, you know. I'm another half Asian just like him, so, you know, we've got that to build upon. There we, go. Upon. <laughs> there um, we no, go. But I, I do think, you know, it, it is important to – I know, obviously the secrecy of things uh, matters, and, and, you know, that's what the NDAs were for. That's why they were there for so long. But, but I do think that it is very important to tell these stories, not only for the men that serve, but the men – that are, you know, the future soldiers, I suppose, going to serve. Um, on that, you know, you speak to a lot of modern war fighters. Do you think that the modern warfighter um, has, you know, similar characteristics in that of, of the, the warfighter of your
1: generation? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, today's, today's particularly the, the Special Forces men, like you look at Mike Glover, what he's done. I mean, he's had, I forget, seven or nine combat tours. Yeah. yeah when incredible. you hear him talk about these tours of duty, I mean they basically took what we did, and you throw in NOGs, state of the art aircraft, surveillance, weaponry, um, they, they 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 raised the bar. We set the bar high, they raised it. And they're just incredible men like him and, and Andy, some of their stories, the missions they ran, what they came up against, and you know, Heck, Afghanistan, Iraq—this is desert warfare. Or are you going building the building? Yeah, the CQB. Uh, aspect give me triple canopy yeah. jungle any day. Yeah, <laughs> and those guys are just—you know—they're just outstanding men. That, uh, in my mind, at least, I really admire, and respect what they've done. Yeah, you know, and, and to get back to an earlier point, your question was too today. There's the suicide thing, and which I find it hard to understand, and it makes it sad for me personally because when I got back. You missed the adrenaline rush Mm. and you missed being there. And it it felt I deserted my team. Yeah. I always felt guilty about leaving them behind, particularly after April 30th, 1975 when Saigon fell. Yeah. Horrible to carry that. But, you know, my new mission was to move on with life. The stories get the degree after that, do the best job possible in the newspaper. And then eventually uh, settled down a little bit, had some wonderful girls. And um uh, then I met my wife Anna and she had two boys. I had two girls. We went for the tiebreaker. Tiebreaker <laughs> 24, and she gave us our first uh, grandson. Yeah, oh, incredible baby. Incredible. Yeah, just, yeah, he was over here this weekend. Just, just a real kick in the ass at 20 22 months now. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: that's brilliant. Um yeah. w- with that, like I-, I love the way that you said that as well. Like, you know, you mentioned the fact that um when when Saigon fell, you you know, you a part of you obviously having served with such brave soldiers in Vietnam and that uh, the Vietnamese themselves. Um, what, what would you say to, you know, the, it, it's, it's similar, it's, it's, it's obviously different, but there are some similarities with the withdrawal from Afghanistan and all that sort of stuff. And not to get political into this at all, but you know, there's a lot of translators and other hardworking Afghan national Army um, soldiers who were, you know, effectively left behind, so to speak kind of the same parallel as, as well, what it happened. It's horrible. I mean,
1: it's gut-wrenching to watch it, but here's yeah. the difference today. We have social media. Yeah. And we have today's Green Berets that have worked with other special Operation Forces men and they've rescued hundreds of people. I know yeah. one guy, I I can't reveal his name because he's still active duty, Yeah, but he's worked behind the scenes to bring back more than 280 people it's incredible. Either Americans, citizens, or Afghans who served with us that had visas, yeah. passports. You know, the men that that fought and cared and their families. Yeah. I mean, some of the early people that got out, they didn't serve. They just were lucky enough to get the hell out of Afghanistan. Yeah. Exactly. Well, um, you know, there's 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 similarities, but in Vietnam, the South Vietnamese fought the Communists for a long time. After our last combat truce, last there was over two years. Yeah, and not all their units fought well, but there were several that that really fought with great valor. Yeah, and that's the difference. Exactly. And then, and in then, and then Congress, which was dominated by Democrats at the time, and are dominated by Democrats today, which led to this disastrous uh, pullout. Yeah, and it's, it's it's a it's a disgrace.
0: No, I completely agree. Um, just another question. Like, What's your sort of impression of what DPAA is doing, you know, currently to bring home the, is it about 1,584 yes, Americans who are, who are still missing in Southeast Asia? Like, what, what's your sort of impression of what they're doing? Well,
1: thank you. you you're, you've done your homework. I appreciate that. Um, today, that number, 1,584, there are Americans left in, in Southeast Asia from the Vietnam War. And that includes 50 Green Berets, 50 plus Green Berets, and 80 plus airmen who died supporting our teams on the ground. Yeah. Helicopter pilots, fast movers, um, uh, A1 Skyraiders. Raiders. Um, these were men that put their lives on the line for us when we were up against the enemy on the ground. So the remains are still there. Yeah. And, um, um, you know, over the last five years, maybe six years, the uh, DPAA has gotten into doing PR things, which is they're working with World War II now and Korean War so they can get bigger numbers, so they can get a bigger bureaucracy. And the Vietnam War is no longer a priority. Their leadership will go public and say it's a priority, but it's not. Yeah, And I could go into chapter and verse on it. And I'm happy to have the, any of those clowns call me out on it. But, you, really, you know, th- in the last five years, I, we've only had four or five remains of Americans brought back. There's all kinds of excuses. Yeah. Okay. But the thing is, the acidic soil of Southeast Asia will destroy the bones and all the evidence of remains within the next five to ten years. Yeah. So... Needs, you know, yeah, they, they need to hurry on up then. Um, or hurry just, on up, take a priority and stop playing word games. They're disgusting. There's some mid, mid-management people that they're here today, i punch them in the face.
0: And just for the listener, um, can you can you just go into what the DPAA is?
1: Yeah, so it's the, under the DOD, Department of Defense. This is the Department of POW, MIA Accountability Accounting Agency. Their okay. job is to go out try to find them to work with different governments. And, you know, with China now threatening and looming over, buying property in Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, they're threatening them with military force in the South China Sea. The South Vietnamese have never been more cooperative than they are today. Our yeah. government is yeah. the one that's dragging its ass right. in the skin. Feels... Yeah, it's, that's unacceptable. It's great. I mean, that that number, like one thousand five hundred
0: eighty-four, is just, just, you know, um,
1: just yeah. Like a lot of our cases, we had teams that got wiped out. Yeah, so the team gets wiped out. And we go back to try to find them. And then we get shot out. We couldn't get him out. Yeah. And then the Congress would either bury them or do what? Who yeah. knows? Crazy. Sometimes they would burn him with a, they had one case where an American was killed. They made an example of him by torching his body with a flamethrower. Yeah. Insane. Oh yeah. They're communists. Yeah. All right. Um,
0: so what's, What's the future for uh, John Stryker Meyer, a.k.a. Tilt?
1: Um, Indeed. Well, if anybody... well, we, we do have a website. It's called Sog Chronicles. Okay. So anybody can go to my website. It's uh, Chronicles. All of the eight Jocko podcasts are there. Jocko podcast number 180, 181, 82, 86. There's nice. four others. 247, 248, and then 258, 259. Brilliant. And then we have SOGcast. They just posted number nine today. Okay. And yeah. that is an interview where I interview SOG veterans to tell their stories. Yeah. And again, those are all on my website that you can go directly into it and then view those. Brilliant. And then we're going to do more of those. And then in January, book four. And meanwhile, be a grandparent and help my wife with her horse here in lovely downtown Tennessee.
0: Enjoying the family, enjoy Tennessee. Absolutely, um, I can't wait to hear more of the SOG cast. Is that is that a, um, a Jocko production as well, or is that um, Jocko own- is
1: kind enough to finances? He's the one that bankrolled that project. Incredible, yeah. He he is such a. Uh, he's been so impressed with our SOG stories that he is funding the Sodcast themselves. Yeah. So anybody we fly in to interview, he pays for the meals, uh, hotel. Yeah, uh, rental cars okay, and, yeah. and, and flights so Absolutely. we owe a, a great deal to jocko
0: yeah well i might just have a holiday on jocko then i'll go visit you and uh from, scotland, from scotland to tennessee there we go <laughs> um no i mean J- jocko like just just while we're on him um you know he's he's one of the sort of inspirations for me to start a podcast like i i, I listened to jocko i think episode one basically um and, and was hooked um you know he, he you, you can't <laughs> not be hooked with, with somebody like Jocko. So uh, yeah, absolutely yeah, uh, yeah. amazing. And I'm glad that he's using his um, influence and his affluence to, to help, you know, other veterans out as well uh, in, in doing. Well, not that.
1: only that, but like the secret war, you know, there's been books yeah, and there's um, history channels, done some documentaries. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. ever since Jocko two, two years ago began doing these podcasts the very first one, the Jocko Podcast, number 180, there's more than 600,000 views. Oh, and these are incredible. people around the world like yourself and others that now I hear from people in Australia yeah. or New Zealand, Hungary, Czechoslovakia. <laughs> like Czechoslovakia, how do you even spell it? Let alone, <laughs> how did you find out about that? It? But it's all through yeah. the internet. It's incredible reach. Where you get the direct stories and you don't get the, today's media, like I said, the majority of the media today is a disgrace. Yeah. as sad what they do and uh, what they don't do. They don't report things accurately. Yeah. And uh, it's just very tragic. But the podcasts are the wave of the future. Yeah. Where then that way people can have a podcast. And Jocko, you know, he's no slouch. He was a Navy SEAL, two tours of duty.
0: Yeah.
1: And his battle for the uh, 2006 he had battle of Ramadi. That's right. Yeah. He was the, uh, he was the officer in charge for task force bruiser. Yeah. The ground force uh, commander. Yeah. His, he lost good men there. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: That's incredible. Yeah. Gut wrenching and uh, incredible uh, stories, but also, you know, his, the way that he talks about leadership um, and the way that he inspires people is just, it's, it's, yeah, it's absolutely incredible. Um, it is. All right. Look, look you, your time is precious. Um, so I'm just gonna wrap up with some stats so can you give us some stats of you know we we have obviously discussed the one thousand five hundred and eighty four um american in that's in total but what were the stats of the the, the green Berets and the sog members again was it fifty well, the for the
1: whole for the whole Vietnam war you had three point two million Americans that served in country yeah that includes five hundred thousand sailors that were anchored off the coast that would come in for a weekend pass or whatever yeah out of that 20,000 plus were Green Berets. Out of that 20,000, I mean, the regular Green Beret was at an aid camp. And those aid camps, some of them were under siege all the time. Yeah, I'd rather be in a triple canopy fighting for my life than to be sitting in a camp waiting for them to come more to my ass.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: And out of the 20,000 Green Berets that served, 2,000 approximately were in SOG. Out of that 2,000 approximately 7 to 700 to maybe 1,200 ran missions across the fence in the layoffs of Cambodia and North Vietnam. Yeah, well, and then today, out of the 1,000, like you said, 1,584 uh, missing in action, um, 50 are Green Berets from the secret war alone. Incredible. Plus the 80-plus aviators, which is just, it's a very personally painful number yeah. and it's for government not do enough on it. It's yeah. just heartbreaking. Is there is there anything that um you know I'm not an
0: American or anything, but if if I've got any American uh, folks listening in, that they can do can they you know write to their local representatives, uh, you know is there is there anything that they can be done? They they could
1: of course, and uh, these days the politicians seem to be less in touch with their voting constituencies than ever in history. Yeah, but um, to nothing else, write a letter to DPAA. Yeah, Google online. And say, hey, let's do more for the Vietnam vets. That's why there is a DPAA. Exactly. It was yeah. formed to bring back our remains. Yeah. All right. So anyone now, listening, did, spam now the DP they, they go. Please. <laughs> yeah. And now what they do, they go to the punch bowl or places where there's known Americans from World War II, yeah. And they dig up those they disintern people that are buried, they do DNA tests on that. Yeah. So as opposed to our guys finding locating identifying and, and bringing them home yeah okay it's totally totally different they're just going for the other side which is much more press releases which is very disturbing yeah but that's gone on, yeah. yeah so that's it uh, that's my story i'm sticking to it yeah. <laughs> thank you for this opportunity and good luck with future podcasts
0: no thank you very much um, and just before we go anything you want to plug uh in terms of you know your social media any charities or anything that um you want
1: to make known no the most important charity is the national league of pow mia families they've been around for 50 plus years yep and their sole mission is to bring home our people to okay. find them identify them and bring them home yeah and uh they wind up fighting our garbage as much as they wind up fighting the communists now which is a very sad commentary yeah
0: I'll, I'll add that um, th- some of those links and stuff to the you know. The, I appreciate the, that. The, the podcast. Thank you, sir. John, thank you so much. Um, Enjoy your time, time and talent, sir. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks. <laughs>
1: Till next time.
0: Yeah. Cheers. Bye.